What goes into making an iconic building in America? What are the stories and who are the people behind the next generation of architecture? If your work touches the real estate industry in any way, or you're just curious about what goes into one-of-a-kind cities and towns all across our country, join us on the American Building Podcast. In Season 2, we learn about everything from skyscrapers to single-family homes, from the famous and soon-to-be-famous designers and developers responsible for them. This season focuses particularly on the pandemic and how our buildings will change in response. Our sponsor is the iconic design firm Michael Graves Architecture and Design. And now, your host, award-winning architect-turned-entrepreneur, Atif Khadr, AIA. This is American Building, and I'm your host, Atif Khadr. I'm the CEO of Redist, a technology company focused on innovative public financing for real estate projects. We are recording from the historic home of world-renowned architect Michael Graves in Princeton, New Jersey. Check out this amazing space for yourself at the Michael Graves Architecture and Design YouTube channel. Now, let's build something. Today, our guest is architect Lee Cloud. Lee is a co-founder and partner at CDR Studio Architects, a full-service design firm in New York. Prior to starting the firm, she was at PKSB Architects, where she had an opportunity to work on the renovation of the famous Seagram building that was designed by Mies van der Rohe, Philip Johnson, Eli Kahn, and Robert Jacobs. Lee serves along with me as a city planning commissioner in Hoboken, New Jersey. She's a graduate of the Rhode Island School of Design. Uh, we'll be talking about her Bushwick townhouse project in Brooklyn and more broadly about how to rethink the role of stairs in architectural design. Thank you so much for being here with us, Lee. Delighted to be here, Atif. Awesome. So let's let's dive right in. You and your business partner, Victoria, met as fifth-year students at RISD. Tell us about her. Well, she was probably one of the most creative people I ever met. There was not a problem she ever encountered that she didn't want to try and solve. Incredibly generous. She was one of those people who would light up a room when you, you know, she walked in. And she was a huge lover of food. She could make almost anything out of food. So her love of food just exemplified her creativity. So it sort of carried over into architecture. And we did a little bit of work doing uh, yeah, a food company before we actually got into developing an architecture. So, And she recently passed away. Is that correct? She did. Correct. Sorry, sorry about that. My our condolences. Thank you. Tell us about the food business that you guys started. Oh, she would cater events. And so we had done a lot of, during when we were at RISD, we did a lot of competitions together. And then when we came out of school, it was during the late 80s. And it was when there were a couple of recessions. So to make ends meet, she got into doing catering. And when she was doing catering, I was okay at the food part, but she was a thousand <laughs> times better. So I ran the front of house. So I did all of the setup. I organized all the people and she would always do all the food and I would help with all the presentations. So we were a really good team. We worked really well together and it got to a point where the catering business was competing with the work that we had together. And so at that point we had this discussion and I said, Vic, you got to choose. We got to choose one or the other because we can't do both. It's just too all consuming. 
And at that point, it was architecture because food was just more about pleasure and mm-hmm. architecture was more about changing the world. What's the most remarkable, memorable dish that you guys uh, prepared as caterers? We did a really famous, there's a recipe called where you braise veal in milk. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, you're, you may be a vegetarian, so it might not be so attractive, but it's a very famous Italian dish. And it was made one late winter night and it was unbelievable. That is spectacular. I feel like that is so emblematic of the the joie de vivre that architects often have. It's this idea of defining a problem and creating a solution, regardless of what the context actually is. I was going to say one of the things that was always fascinating about Vic is sometimes, depending on the clients that we had, she would present a problem like a menu problem. So she would relate it literally to food Mm -hmm. and how she would solve the problem, which you know, if you are not an architect, it's actually, or, you know, you're a client going through a project, it was actually a really easy metaphor analogy to walk through. And it made it sometimes much easier for people, depending on what the projects were. Ah, okay. So maybe like uh, describing concrete, like it was a, like a stew with all the ingredients that go into it. (laughs) Exactly. You find the right additive to create a certain visual and to, you know, solve a textural problem, you know, exactly. I love it. I think that that's absolutely fantastic. So you decided despite all the talents that you two had as caterers is to focus on architecture and you worked at PKSB Architects for almost 12 years. How did you know that it was eventually time to, to make that leap and start on your own as a design firm? So PKSB offered me lots of opportunities. The interesting road there was that I was a young woman and there were not very many women in the field. And it was became very clear after being there for a long period of time, they, they did make me an associate and there was a, mm-hmm. a sort of pattern in which I could rise or move up in the firm. But it was clear at one point that I had hit the ceiling. They would never make me a partner And there were certain limitations. They didn't share with me certain things. So at that point, I had been frustrated because I had wanted to learn the whole business. Mm -hmm. And Victoria and I had always done these competitions on the side, and we'd done some projects. And it just became clear that it was not going to happen. So we decided at that point that should she get the next project, that we would do it together. And the funny part was that one of the partners at PKSB recommended her for a project and she got the project. And what he didn't realize that was that he was recommending both of us. So I had to go to him and say, you know, here's the situation. He was incredibly generous. And he said, mm-hmm. kudos for you. You know, and it was sort of, I think at the time, in retrospect, it was the best way for me to sort of leave the firm because he knew the writing was on the wall and mm-hmm. it was a very gracious way to let me move out. And so that was, you know, that we got a project doing renovation of a restaurant in um, Wagner Park down at the bottom of Battery Park City. And it was uh, Rudolfo Machado building. It's a monument still there. And we did the build out for the restaurateur. It's no longer there, but that was, it was sort of, sort of a combination of the food world and the mm-hmm. architecture world, which was interesting. 
That's absolutely fantastic. And I think that you were able to uh, skip over that first uh, step, which is the renovation of your friend's apartment or house, which is usually the first project that someone does as their own firm. And on that note, between PKSB and CDR Studios, you have worked on a variety of asset classes and project types from a new laboratory building to the renovation of a library. And many of our colleagues in the industry seem to be hyper, hyper focused, specializing in the same type of work over and over again, project after project. How do you succeed as a designer when you are working on a, a new type of project? So I think, you know, one of the wonderful things about the training that we had at RISD is you kind of view everything as a design problem, right? Mm -hmm. So not only do you view the problem at hand, whatever the, the program is, but you also view the problem of how do you get work that's more varied. And one of the things that we thought about was we did not want to get pigeonholed into one thing. And so we learned very early that you know, we could solve almost any problem. I mean, we, we were very confident as young designers that we could solve any problem, but we also realized that we needed to pitch our services in such a way that we showed that we could do, we could break down our tasks in such ways, depending on what the problem was, that we could approach anything, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that that skill set translates into how we approach problems, which is, you know, we're very clear with clients. We walk through the program. We do. We mm -hmm. sort of go through each piece and walk them through through a series of questions and and sort of conversations. How do we get further? I think I'm being kind of circuitous in answering your question, but I think we prided ourselves on really being able to knit because we might not have a particular focus and fine-tuned access to one type of project meant that we didn't think about it only one way. We thought about it in multiple ways, right? It was just yet another problem to solve. So how do you sort of step outside of the box and think differently about each thing? If you're not in that world only, it's easier to step outside and say, you know, did you think about it this way? Did you think about it this way? What about if we try this? So I think we have the ability to think about it that way. It's also how we thought about the practice is we really wanted a, a well-rounded practice and, and we want to always maintain our curiosity. And by doing many different things, it opened up our curiosity. So it's sort of, I can relate it back to the, the world of catering and the world that, you know, like you want the full meal. You don't just want to focus on appetizers. You want the whole thing. I think that actually absolutely does. And I think that in a similar way, you could say that if the chef is very good, then regardless of the recipe itself, there is going to be a structure and a process to how to execute on it. I was channeling Victoria on that answer. <laughs> there, so. I like that. She would love that. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I really want to have a chance to, to learn about this amazing project that you're working on, the Bushwick Townhouse. So uh, tell us about the neighborhood in Brooklyn, where the Bushwick Townhouse is located and, and what's around the site. Sure. Well, first of all, you know, I didn't know that much about Bushwick when we got it started, but it's a, uh, you know, it's a real working class neighborhood. It was originally founded, I think, acquired by the Dutch back in the 1600s. And Bushwick literally meets into the woods, mm -hmm. which I was curious to find out. And so that tells you a little bit, like it was originally farmland. Mm -hmm. And so there's still a lot of old growth trees there. But then it went through a whole series of immigrant changes, right? So 
the Dutch had it, the Germans had it, it was Brewery Row, it was at one point a big theater area, and then later it's now it's really, I think mostly, there's a very large immigrant population there, so I think a lot of Puerto Ricans and uh, South Americans. So it's very varied, and that's really wonderful, it's really a microcosm of New York. And in the area, particularly, it's in the southeast of Bushwick, so further away from Manhattan, and it's on a very wide avenue. So it's got these fabulous trees. And then in that particular, like two or three block zone, there's a series of brownstones, townhouses, and there's a community resource center nearby. There's also some great little cafes that are, you know, sort of small businesses starting out. So it's really kind of a varied area. And most of the buildings are four to five stories. So it's a very residential neighborhood. That's amazing because I I would imagine that when someone thinks of New York City and thinks of Brooklyn, there's a singular vision of what that actually means. And when you're in a place like Bushwick, I've had the opportunity to visit as well. It's not quite that way. It's it's, it's exactly what you described. And I'm sure that that created a, a terrific opportunity in terms of inspiration for the work that you did. So who is the client and what was the prompt that that he gave you? And basically, what did he want you to accomplish with your design? The client's a wonderful client, first of all. He's in the medical profession. He's a doctor. Mm-hmm. And I think he's pretty recently out of school, I want to say like the last 10 years. So he's a single guy, is interested in lots of different things. But he came to us Sort of circuitously, he had done, he was working with an architect and he decided that he wanted to do a passive house. Mm -hmm. So he left that architect and then he found my partners in this project, a firm called BKAD, Briggs Knowles Mm -hmm. Architecture and Design, who Mm -hmm. I went to RISD with, and Victoria and I went to RISD with a long time ago. And they focus on passive houses, but they are primarily in Providence because they teach at RISD also. Mm -hmm. So he had seen a lot of their work and approached them. And then they approached us because we were, you know, we've done tons of work in Manhattan in New York Mm -hmm. city and they wanted to team with us. So that's a long route in. So really what he wanted was a passive house, but he Mm -hmm. also wanted a house that would allow him to grow and change. So Mm -hmm. he comes from a big family, but he's single at the moment. And the building that he bought is a two-family. So it's an apartment exists on two levels, and then an apartment exists on two levels. So what he wanted was to change it to a one-family with a single unit on the bottom. So it's still two-family, but the unit on the bottom is just one floor and has the ability to either be overflow for family Mm -hmm. or a big entertaining space or... It might be his office for a while and a media room. You know, it's so it's this idea that he has flexibility. So that's the mm-hmm. first thing that I think, in addition to the past files. The second prompt was he it really wants the house to be very open. He wanted real connectivity and real community within the house. He didn't mm-hmm. want it so that everybody would go to their own room and not come together. So he wanted that quality within the entire house not just on like one public level. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the one of the big prompts. He's also a Sikh. So I assume a religious person. So mm-hmm. he also wanted a, the ability to have a prayer room within the house. So that was an unusual mm-hmm. program. 
So that's sort of the range of things that he brought to us. And he also, he's an excellent educated client because he came with a series of images. He came with a series of words describing. Mm -hmm. So he's just incredibly creative in a way that I found fascinating because I don't necessarily, you know, this is maybe my bias. I didn't associate that with somebody from the medical world. So he came Mm -hmm. with all these images. He came with words. He came with ideas and he continues to evolve those. So you mentioned one of the aspects that your client emphasized in that prompt was this idea of openness uh, and light and air and bringing people together. So in that line of thought, walk our listeners through the townhouse describing how it'll be once it's completed. So from the street level, from Bushwick Avenue, which is where he's located, it looks like a three-story townhouse, right? On the ground level, you would walk in, there's a bedroom that is functioning as an office. It's a flexible room. So it can be an office, it can be a guest room. It can actually be opened up to the full width of the brownstone. So the brownstone Mm -hmm. is also about 16 feet wide by about 40 feet long, just for context. Behind that is a small bathroom and a kitchen that's wide open to a back media room. So those two rooms are open. They flow out into a lower terrace. And then there's a couple of steps up that go out to the yard. So it's this very open space to the back. There's a separate stair hall that's enclosed that goes up to what we call the main townhouse, right? So Mm -hmm. the main townhouse is three levels. And actually four levels. It has a fourth level on top. We've added on to that. On the main level is an open dining kitchen living space with a deck off the back. And at the kitchen level, it's you know a common problem in these townstone townhouses that are narrow. Is the stair oriented the long way, you know, deep into the lot, or is the stair oriented the perpendicular way? Because it's a narrow building perpendicular is often not the way to do it. But what Mm -hmm. we looked at was actually allowing it to be perpendicular and allowing it to wrap all the way up and making this open slot that goes up three stories, right? So that's where you get this idea of connectivity, right? So you come in, you see the dining room, you're in the kitchen, all of a sudden you can look up and you see this open 10 by full width, 16 feet, all the way up to the top. And there's a curtain wall at the top, a storefront at the top. So there's a lot of Mm -hmm. light coming down and through. So that's the main level. On the upper level, the next level up, it's two bedrooms Mm -hmm. um, with bathrooms off of that main open stair area. And then there's a master bedroom up above that, off that stair area. And there's a terrace, an outside terrace off the front of the building. And then above the master bedroom suite is a prayer room. So the prayer room's at the top and it has a skylight and light out to the back of the house. So this sort of stair periscope piece that we call it that lets light in also functions in the sense that from any level you can come out and it's a very light and open stair and you can see what's going on in the house. So it creates the sense of community and connectivity. I think that so that was the goal and I think we're getting there. That sounds fantastic. And when you compare the the goal of where you'd like to go to where the project is right now, so when you visited the building as it is for the first time, what really stood out to you? Well, it's it's a beautifully crafted, it, it's one of four. Mm-hmm. So, you know, often you see this in New York where it's a series of brownstones that are all connected and they all look the same, right? So it's a third one of four. And 
What was really beautiful about it is it has this incredibly tight little stair, but it does have light from above. And when we came to it, it had been demolished. So all we're seeing is the wood framing within. Mm -hmm. And you're struck by, wow, they built these houses really solid and they're really beautifully built. So Mm -hmm. we are maintaining a lot of the framing and we will reuse a lot of the floor framing. And again, that's sort of in the goals of passive houses too. Mm -hmm is to keep as many materials as we can and just supplement them. So we're minimizing the waste. And so that was a really lovely component to find. Were there any really beautiful historic details like uh, plaster medallions or or wood paneling that, that you saw originally? Well, it was all demolished when we got there. So there really wasn't, but ah, okay. right, um, because the previous generation of what he had done had gotten to that point. But what we did, one of the nice characteristics is it is one of those classically beautiful Mm -hmm. outside buildings, right? So it has a beautiful wide staircase that's all done in brownstone. And it does have a vestibule door that has this lovely curved arch to it. So we Mm -hmm. will maintain that and use it within the house. So we're using what we can of what's there. That sounds terrific. And when I renovated historic townhouse in uh, Hoboken on Hudson Street, I found that there's this whole niche industry of retailers and salvagers that purchase and then resell historic details that architects or developers or owners aren't able to use in townhouses in Hudson County, New Jersey or Brooklyn, for example. And some of the most beautiful things that I've I've seen often are uh, stone mantelpieces, the entire face for a fireplace. Those are some of the most beautiful things, as well as extremely large, oversized wooden doors. Some, for example, from the Hudson Street Project, we sold 14 foot high uh, curved solid wood doors. Stunning, absolutely stunning. Yeah. Well, none of those were left in this particular instance, but I totally, (laughs) totally know what you're talking about, especially in Hoboken. There's a lot of that here. Yeah. And I think from what you're describing is this idea of making a space open and larger. That means that unfortunately, some of those things, if they were there, just don't really (laughs) fit anymore. That's basically the reality. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned uh, earlier BKAD, and that's the firm that you're partnering with on this design. So tell us about the logistics of how how does it work when there's two firms that are are working together? Like who's responsible for what? Um, how do you like share files and things like that? So you know these are folks that I are some of my closest friends, and I've known them for a really long time. Right. So the lovely thing is we have periodic calls on teams or we do it on zoom and we just kind of go through the process. Here's what we're thinking about this idea. And we each come to the table with thoughts and we do it in real time. Right. Mm -hmm. So we'll put up ideas and we'll talk through how to, to solve the problems or potential ways to think about things. How do we share files? We do use Google docs quite often and there doesn't seem to be a complexity in terms of how we do that. It seems actually pretty straightforward. I think the way that we initially talked about the project is we would split. They did the initial design and then we were going to execute. But because we've known each other for so long and because mm-hmm. we are all designers, we pretty much work through every single part of it together. So that's it's actually wonderful because it, it doesn't feel hard. It doesn't feel challenging. It actually feels richer because each time we hit a problem, we're like, okay, here's what I'm thinking. What are you thinking? And then, you know, like everybody brings something to the table and it's fascinating mm-hmm. to see where it goes. 
how we, the logistics of, we are actually filing the job. We are, we will oversee the construction. They will come down periodically. So it seems really fluid. And I think a lot of that is the nature of our friendship that's helped it. So there's not a lot of ego involved. It's, you know, we want to do the best thing, the right thing for our client. It's nice to hear that there are architects that don't have egos so, <laughs> or not too much egos. And uh, the, to, is the terminology correct, Lee, to say it's called a design architect and architect of record? Or are there other terms that are used for those relationships? Those are the correct terms, I would say, though. I, yeah, in this instance, I'm not sure it's that clear. But yes, that's how we initially started it. And that's how we're clarifying it. Whenever we hit a problem that we are not comfortable with, we go back to our original rules. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So I'm going to pause here to let our listeners know about one of our spectacular guests for next month. Lauren Eckhart is the Senior Vice President of Design at Allergem Capital Group, and she will be on to talk about One Beverly Hills. That's a 17 and a half acre site in the heart of, you guessed it, Beverly Hills, California. This one of a kind residential and hotel project and commercial project focuses on sustainability in all of its forms. Subscribe now at American Building Podcast so you don't miss a single episode in season two. Okay, so Lee, give us a primer about the codes, the the rules that dictate the use, the quantity, the layout, the dimensions, all that minutiae about the stairs in residential projects like this one. Okay, so there's a lot of minutiae. Right. But the big overview is you got to know what code you're filing in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Uh, New York is, you know, laden with code issues. So in residential districts typically have some basic standards, though. In our particular situation, we were able to open a stair three floors. You probably can't go greater than three floors. Right. Mm-hmm. In a multifamily, you have to have two means of egress. We have two means of egress for each of the units. Right. Mm-hmm. And egress means the basically ability to leave, or that's what egress means? Correct. Okay. It means the ability to exit in the in a life safety issue. So if there's a okay. fire or there's an emergency, you can get out two different ways. The next, I think, thing to think about is residential stairs typically have to be at least 36 inches wide, right? Mm-hmm. So three feet wide. That's a standard. There is a, a sort of standard code rule of the dimensions of the stairs, right? So the rise of the stair is the vertical component and the horizontal is the tread. So mm-hmm. in New York City, it's if you take the addition of two risers plus one tread, it cannot be greater, cannot be less than 25 and a half inches. So that's an important thing to understand. Okay. So you think about seven by 11, right? Which mm-hmm. is a standard stair dimension, seven inches high by 11 inches mm-hmm. deep. So it's 14 and 11, it's 25. So it can't be less than 25 and a half. So you got to get another half inch in there, right? So okay. that's kind of a rule of thumb. Treads have a minimum depth of nine inches, which if, if you've ever gone up a really steep stair, you know what that feels like. It's very limiting. Risers, they can be between four inches high and eight and a quarter. Like that's a really big variation in terms of how you move through mm-hmm. a stair. So, and then there are certain like tolerance levels between how from, if you're going from floor one to two and then floor two to three, you can't make them too different. So the stairs mm-hmm. one to two have to be, I think it's like three eighths inch difference in terms of height. You can't make them. And then in a residential stair, you can actually have a handrail 
at three feet wide, you can have handrail only on one side. Often, and you'll see this in most townhouses, right? You have that main balustrade, mm-hmm. but you don't have a handrail on the outside mm-hmm. of the building, right? So that's kind of like the basic rules of thumb. And, you know, obviously when you're doing a house, you're really conscious of, or any kind of a building, the floor to floor heights mm-hmm. and the differences in floor to floor heights. So in a lot of these townhouses, the parlor level was always much taller than the, the bedroom levels or the lower level, in fact, because mm-hmm. often the lower level was a, a service level as well. So mm-hmm. getting your stairs to work in all of those aspects is always a challenge. And then you can only have so much length of stair before you have to introduce a landing, right? So like those are all, it all sounds easy when you think about one thing, but when you have to pull them all together, it's often this jigsaw puzzle of, okay, I took a quarter inch out of here, but I got to meet this, you know? So you're always doing this until you get it exactly right. And then you have to work backwards and go into the design that you're trying to get to, right? So how do you make that all come together? So that's kind of a quick overview. (laughs) There's a lot going on there. And I think that was a a fantastic summary. Taking a, a bird's eye perspective of this, is there the idea for such a wide range is to accommodate the fact that if you have someone that's five foot tall versus they're six and a half foot tall, that there's a very different experience. Is, is that the reasoning for such a wide range for things? I think it's actually both from the experiential side, from a code perspective, it's probably both from the experiential side of, you know, size of people, but it's also to be uh, allow for variation in construction, right? So it's trying to marry it depending on what the situation is. And it's true. I mean, as an architect, you know this, you know, you go to different buildings and you can feel the difference. If you're in a, a stair that's more landscape oriented, it's very low and shallow and you feel mm-hmm. like you're just walking really fluidly versus a steep house. You know, it's a struggle to go up the stairs, mm-hmm. right? So there's a whole experiential level that's involved in how you want to think about the stair and what you want to achieve as well. Got it. I would imagine in, in, in the case of when you're renovating or redeveloping, you have certain constraints physically around which you must work. So uh, that flexibility allows for you to build within the, the constraints that are there. That, that makes a lot of sense then. Absolutely. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier when you were walking the listeners through the townhouse as it'll be completed, what a intrinsic role the staircase and the stairwell overall plays in terms of the feeling of openness in the design. Tell us more about the details of what's going on with the stairs. Like, for example, connecting what you just talked about in terms of the codes to how that actually informed your final design for the staircase and some of the materials that you chose in order to be able to get that final vision, that the thing that you wanted the client to be able to experience. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, when you have a narrow, a lot, right, it's 16 feet wide and it's 40 feet long. So, you know, sort of the natural predilection is to go the long way with the stair because Mm -hmm. of the distance of the stair. But because we wanted to create this almost this interior room of light, we flipped it the other direction, right? So that gave us a certain amount of limitation, right? We knew that we had so many stairs we had to fit in and we had to flip it the other way. So we then thought about what is the experience of, of actually passing through that space. So what we did was from the parlor level to the first bedroom level, 
there is a limitation. I mean, it is a certain height that's different mm-hmm. than the upper levels, right? So we were able to fit the stairs on the upper levels on the narrow side, on the 16-foot mm-hmm. side, right, with landings between. But on the parlor level, because of the height, we had additional stair. So we both transverse, we go across the 16-foot, then we come down the long distance, and then we turn it. So we make a more public piece at the lower, at the parlor level, we make it more like a series of stairs that you could sit on that's actually part of the living room. And Mm -hmm. it creates more of an experience about the stair. And we've integrated a piece of cabinetry into it. So it feels like it's much more than just a passageway. And then the other things that we thought a lot about was because, as I mentioned, on the upper level, we do have this storefront of glazing and we are trying to bring light. A lot of the challenges of townhouses like this when they're deep is there's Mm -hmm. not a lot of light on the interior. Mm -hmm. Right. So that was also a real key component of developing the stair this way. So we have a storefront, a full glass wall at the top level. Is that where the prayer room is? It's actually on the master level. There's just one bedroom. There's the stair and then there's an outside terrace. So at the outside terrace, we pulled up a full storefront. So there's about a 15 foot glass wall here because we added the level of the prayer room Mm, onto the building. Right. So you've got this, you know, 15, 16 foot high glass wall. And we wanted to bring that down through the upper three stories, right? So that was a really critical part of the stair design. So when we looked at the materials of the stair, we were really conscious of not wanting them to be too heavy, of wanting them to allow light to pass through, Mm -hmm. of wanting them to be true to the structure of the building. So we did a series of designs where we thought through, okay, how do we, you know, what supports a stair is typically called a stringer. It's a beam mm-hmm. that's a diagonal beam that supports the stair. And that's what makes your stair have a certain thickness, right? And we wanted to make sure that our stringers were either not visible or they were integrated into the stair. The way the stair was designed was such that its structure was able to handle itself on its mm-hmm. own. So after lots of testing, we've gone to the point where we are now most of the upper level stairs all steel plate. So it's a very thin steel plate. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine there's not a lot of structure to it because the structure has all been buried in the walls. So it's very lightweight. So more light can pass through. And then the handrails were another big component because the sides of the stair, which you have to enclose so that nobody can fall out, could be solid. And we didn't really want them to be glass because it was too hard and modern and didn't feel warm enough for this particular residence. So what we're investigating is using a perforated metal. So very lightweight metal Mm -hmm. that's perforated so that all the light can come through. And what's beautiful about that is, you know, over the changing day and the light, you get all of these different patterns. And so you, you experience the day as it changes as you're moving through the stair. So your experience at night is very different than your experience at day. So what we've done right now is it's steel plate. It's got this perforated side rail. And then because the steel as a tread to walk on is kind of cool and and could have a lot of sound, we wanted to warm it up. So right now we've got a wood tread on that so Mm -hmm. that it's connected to all the wood floors and you feel this continuity of all of the floors. But when you look up from below, you just get this very lightweight sculptural steel plate. 
So that's where we are now. That's really fascinating because I think the easy answer would be, oh, it's going to be a metal stair and have this be completely different than what's around it. And I think that's clever to use a similar type of floor material to connect with the the actual floors themselves. Yeah. So natural light is a lot of what is influencing this, but tell us about nighttime. So tell us about the, the lighting that you have chosen in terms of the light fixtures that will continue this idea of continuity at nighttime then. Ah, really good question. Okay, so there's a, other, a couple of other components within the stair that I haven't articulated so mm-hmm. much about, um, which is that on one, so I've talked about the perpendicular, right? So the perpendicular, meaning the 16 foot wide dimension. Mm-hmm. So the stairs are, are moving up that 16 foot wide dimension. On one side of that, we pulled a full wall of cabinetry that goes the full three or four stories, right? Mm-hmm. So that cabinetry holds a lot of functional pieces at the lower levels, the kitchen, you know, it's closets for utilities as you go up. And then there's a little open bar on the top. But because of that, what we've done is we are washing that wall with light and we're working with a fabulous lighting designer. I'll just do a quick pitch for Derek Porter, who's at Parsons. And he's, what we've done is that cabinetry wall is not only at the stairs, but it extends into both bedrooms on the bedroom levels. So that, again, it creates this context of the whole building because when the doors are open to the bedrooms, it's all washed with light. So you feel Mm -hmm. that as one bigger figure in this whole house, right? So because we have this wash of light on the cabinetry wall, and then on the other wall opposite, we are developing a tile that is sort of connected to the idea of the brownstone or the brick of the building, Mm -hmm. but that is articulated in such a way because of the way the texture is being developed, it will push the light down. So the experience you can imagine over the day is the large glass window that I was describing is really on the south. It's more to the southeast. And so there'll be a lot of morning light that will completely wash that space. So there will be Mm -hmm. no need for any electric light. So over the day, and depending on whether you're in the winter or the summer, over the day, that light will move to the West and Mm -hmm. you'll have a very different experience, right? So that over the day, you'll get all this shadow, fabulous shadow. And then as the evening comes on, the electric light will wash the cabinetry wall and you'll get this reflected light back from the cabinetry wall and a little bit of reflected light from the tile wall. So you'll have a very different, the stair will become a little bit moodier. It'll still have a lot of ambient light from those electric lights, but it won't be such a big feature. You won't see so much light coursing through the building, but there'll still be this sense of continuity and connection across the spaces. That's fantastic because I can imagine that at nighttime, clear sky, the uh, lights on that this feature the sculptural element of the the house, which is the staircase, really comes alive on its own as well. And that that experience will probably be different during the the morning as well as the nighttime. Have you guys done any renderings or imagined the way that that would look before it's built? We have. We do. We actually have done a lot of those. We do a lot of three-dimensional modeling and we do do sun studies. And because it's really critical, we're trying to figure out how much, you know, As you probably know from Passive House, you're constantly trying to balance the amount of heat gain in the building and making Mm -hmm. sure that you're okay. So we've done a lot of light studies. We're trying to figure out whether we're going to do some planting on that upper terrace to shade 
that large window. We may do some mechanized shading devices there to minimize the heat gain. So we're in the process of doing that on a regular basis as we move through the project. That's excellent. Actually, earlier this season, architect uh, Jenny Payson of uh, Jenny Payson Architecture, we had a chance to talk to her and her whole episode focused on the fundamentals of uh, Passive House. So if any of the listeners are interested in getting a primer of understanding that, you can check that episode from earlier this season. So Lee, you did another uh, residential project that prominently features uh, stairs, and that one is in uh, fabulous Nomas, Colorado. So tell us about that. It was a really different project, very steep site, 60 degree site. And the house was, was an existing structure, but we ended up rebuilt, basically building it back up from scratch because it was in such bad condition. And again, because the client wanted a pretty, it was a pretty large program. What we did was we used the stair and because it was such a steep site, the stair became almost like parts of the topography. So you Mm -hmm. move through the house like topography. So at one, at the big level where you walked in, it was, again, a very light steel stair so that you had this big, large, open public space. But as it, you move through, it carved into the structure. So mm-hmm. it was almost a solid wood stairs as if you were carving into the ground. So what was wonderful about that was we were able to create really different experiences. So it was a very, in, on the upper levels, it was very public and that was really in line with what the pub, the client wanted. It was a very public space. She did, she was part of the Aspen Music Festival. She had big mm-hmm. events there, et cetera. But as you move down into the more private levels, you had these. And so at that point, at the public level, you, you could see out this great vista to the mountains beyond. So you had a connection in a really large world way, you know, both to the mountains, to this big public space. But then as you moved through, your stair focused you on windows that actually focused on smaller connections to the landscape. So again, it changed the scale. It changed Mm -hmm. your experience. It changed your connection to the site. So that was a constant theme in that project where we were making the stair move through the site like you would actually move down the hill and creating connection to the landscape in ways that were varied and created an experience of the site Mm -hmm. from within the house, because as you know, the, the climate's pretty severe. So Mm -hmm. you had these different experiences, you know, we had a, a little bridge with a telescope off one, we had this little moss garden off the other, you know, so there was this constant change and carving into the site. So it was a really completely different way of approaching the stair. What's really fascinating is that uh, even though that uh, an architect might be starting with the same point of view of the codes and the legal basis for how to design a staircase, when you have a truly exceptional architect, you could take that and make something that is literally a, a sculpture on its own, as opposed to just a perfunctory means of getting from one level to, to another. Absolutely. I think another project, it's sort of the opposite extreme, is I think We've done a lot of public work for, or big commercial projects for Audi. And in those instances, right, we've done these vast showrooms that can be 30,000 square feet large. You have a stair that has to get you from one level to the other. So in that instance, the stair is, takes on this completely different role where it's almost ceremonial, 
right? Mm -hmm. It's the ceremony of how you go from one floor to the other. You're on view as you move up through the stair. It's also a sculptural idea, right? Because it's the only, because it's just this big, flat, wide open showroom. It's the only architectural component in it besides the cars. And the whole purpose is to show off the vehicles because that's, Mm -hmm. that's what they sell. That's how it is. (laughs) Right. So, but you're also allowing the customer to feel sort of elevated and Mm -hmm. special and on view. And they are just as beautiful as the objects that they're looking at, you know, so it takes on a whole different quality. And that's the wonderful thing about stairs is they, you can use them to define both what it is that you want the program to say, but you could also give it back to the people who are experiencing it. So they can take on so many different things. I think that that's so fascinating because we, we started the episode talking about the incredible perspective that architects have about being able to define a problem and create a solution to it. The reality often is, is that the same situation might have multiple different problems that need to be solved. And it's one beautiful solution that can tie them all together, like an example of this staircase in the Audi project that you that you just talked about. So uh, thank you so much, Lee, for joining us today on the American Building Podcast. If our listeners would like to hear the behind the scenes stories of how iconic buildings in our country were designed and built subscribe to this podcast on spotify itunes google anchor stitcher or wherever you like to listen rate and review us on itunes to help us reach a wider audience and please follow us on instagram at american building podcast we all know real estate is a tough industry to make it so how can professionals stand out and make a name for themselves in today's world Uh, You can hear from me, the teams at Michael Graves and Redist, and many of our spectacular guests, likely on what we did to make it where we are. You can grab our exclusive guide, Seven Tips on How to Stand Out in Your Field, at AmericanBuildingPodcast.com. Finally, we live in the richest country in the history of humankind. We must reach out beyond the boundaries that we see and the boundaries that we create in order to help build homes and communities. Today, Lee and I have made donations to the Center for Genetic Medicine at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University. The center is dedicated to improving our understanding of the fundamental genetic mechanisms and the genetic basis of human disease. It makes information about genetic advances available to all through academic programs and public education. I encourage you, our listeners, to support their worthwhile work as well. My name is Atif Kader, and this has been American Building.